This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Who doesn't, right? Uh, big story today. A lot of news flow, but of course, we've all been uh, obsessed, I feel like, for the last few years, uh, but very focused today as the U.S. and China signed what they are billing as the first phase of a broader trade pact that happened uh, today. Let's get into it with Chris Campbell, chief strategist at the Duffenfel- at Duffenfelps, excuse me, former assistant treasury secretary of the U.S. Treasury. Uh, and I guess, you know, Chris, first of all, great to have you here great in our studio. So I think we're all trying to figure out what exactly does this mean? The president has already said phase two is going to start really soon and that I think there will not be a phase three. Like, it's just interesting. Um, what's the significance of it all? Look, it's a huge step forward. I think, you know, look, going back 15 years, we've had a strategic economic dialogue with China for, uh, that covers four president, American presidents. And we've, we've been in multilateral and bilateral conversations with them for a long time. Why did we never get anything done earlier? That's a good question. I think, you know, I, the traditional approach to China just hasn't worked. Um, candidly, the conversations the Chinese, I've been a part of these conversations, they will always say the right thing and never follow through, in my, in my experience. It really kind of took the the un, uh, unusual approach of this president um, to you know it's a negotiating style to up kind of change the dynamic between us and the Chinese uh, to the point where they had to take they had to take uh, a notice um, with the erection of the of the tariffs um, that he put in place you know it it has depending on what numbers you look at it you know it has a significant has a significant impact in China um, which has forced them to the table and uh, we now we now had took a huge step forward in inking a deal that would otherwise be unthinkable uh, under previous administrations and so I give great credit to the president and Secretary Mnuchin and and Bob Lighthizer uh, in this very complex set of negotiations Um, and irrespective uh, you know, even if you look at this um, and say this is a nothing burger, which I don't, but some do, mm-hmm. this is a huge step forward from which we can, uh, this administration, if, if reelected or a pre, uh, future administration, can build upon mm-hmm. um, in any, in any in, and so again, we're, we're, on the, we're on the right trajectory with China. Secretary Mnuchin, your old boss. I yes. mean, you, you worked uh, in that part of the government. You also worked on Capitol Hill. So you understand both the policy and the politics here. Correct. Um, What's weighing heavier at this point? We are in a presidential uh, election year. How much sort of meat is there here and how much is to come potentially in phase two? Look, I think this administration has is, is proven that if uh, they're going to keep the Chinese feet to the fire. And so I think whatever whatever China signed, signed up to in this agreement, which I think, I think it's a very substantive, some national property issues, some you know promises to buy a lot of our agriculture and moving the needle on many uh, variety of other, other issues. I think if you see them back Backpedaling, I think there are going to be consequences. Mm-hmm. I think the administration will levy the consequences to that. Um, and that, you know, like I, politically speaking, um, it doesn't behoove either party to be um, uh, on the China on the side of China when right. they, you know. And so, I, I, at the end of the day, I look. I think that China can be and should be a strategic partner in the United States, and I'm excited that we're. But is we, that we, done? I feel like many would say and weigh in, Chris, that the relationship has been damaged. And there are things that they're not gonna forget going forward. Do you agree? Uh, 
it could possibly possibly the way they have a very long view. The Chinese take a much longer view than, in my my experience, than we do in the United States. Um, perhaps they'll remember this, but I think at the end of the day, um, it's good for uh, U.S. consumers to have access to their markets. Um, they've had access to our markets for a very long time, and they've actually grown a, a quite a significant economy based on on American consumerism. And so it's time for us to level the playing field. And I believe that this agreement takes us in the right steps, makes some steps in the right direction to get us there. And so, um, you know, I, look, I think that there is, uh, there are always consequences to any negotiations. I think that, you know, if he goes up and bruised in this process, I believe that the, and the time will heal those, 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 and we can now move forward and perhaps as partners to try to find a way to actually build bridges uh, that can really make meaningful impact to the, both economies. So if you're advising a CEO or an investor, how is your behavior different if you are a CEO or an investor now with this deal versus what it was pre-deal? So we do advise a lot of clients on this on these issues. And what we're advising clients is that, you know, I think that this, uh, candidly, I think the market is baked in the phase one deal. Um, I, I think personally that, uh, speaking to my friends in D.C., that the phase two deal prior to the election is likely, very unlikely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're going to see the tariffs in, you know, remain in effect throughout the end of this year. Um, yeah, look, and I think about that, that gives China and the United States both impetus to be able to, to make steps forward to get a phase two deal, you know, irrespective of the president's elected or not elected. Also, I think, like, I've been doing this for a long time, I've been doing international trade policy for a long time. Um, the challenge is this, is that when Republicans typically, when Republicans negotiate an economic agreement, international trade agreement, they, they really do economic terms. So it's trade and, and patents and that kind of things that really move the needle on the economy, or Democrats tend to do take, bring in soft approaches as well, so labor um, rights, environmental rights, those kind of issues. And I think that people, the smart people in Beijing also are seeing the election as well and saying, you know, like, if President Trump is not reelected, and look, you can you look at the, the debate of last night where this came up, and yeah. they, they said that they, you know, they're going to put in economic, uh, non-economic terms. Right. Like, you know, like, so, I think that, you know, China, China's, China's uh, is motivated. We got to run. Chris, thank you so much. It's nice to get some time with you. Chris Campbell, Chief Strategist over at Duffin Phelps Institute. All right, so big banks rolling out their results this week. What do we make of it so far? JP Morgan really came out with a bang uh, yesterday, and now we have Goldman B of A. Maybe people are not so excited about that. Feels like a different tone today. Definitely a different tone. Let's break it down with Ken Leon. He is Global Director of Industry and Equity Research over at CFRA Research. He joins us on the phone from New York City. Ken, thanks for making time on what I am sure is a very busy week. So do you agree with what Carol just said, a different tone uh, with the results and the reaction today? Yeah, I think the tone changed with Bank of America's call because they're looking to the first half of 2020 for uh, a little bit slower growth in loan growth um, and also, you know, low rates still um, having a, an impact on their net interest earnings that won't pick up to the second half of the year. I think that was the most critical thing uh, in the major core business, which is lending. Um, capital markets, uh, everyone's doing great in fixed income trading. Uh, it's a very easy comparison to weak results a year ago, uh, sequentially to the third quarter, about the same. Um, I, I like the intro here about uh, the president's meeting and signing of phase one. Uh, obviously, uh, with the Federal Reserve um, being accommodative, U.S. economy looks good, 
and, and maybe global risk is coming down a notch, which helps the banks. Uh, still, CEO confidence is still negative. Uh, it just came out a week ago uh, in the 40 range. 50 and above is positive. Uh, so CEO confidence really spurs on capital investment and also mergers and acquisitions. But it doesn't sound like we need to feel sorry for the banks. Um, I think you know, analysts like myself are, you know, enjoying, you know, they had a tremendous fourth quarter on yeah. stock performance. Right. Uh, that momentum into 2020 means you need, at the heart, a business profile with high exposure to the U.S. consumer on credit card, consumer loans, auto, residential. Um, credit quality is excellent right now. Uh, so the traditional part of the banks plus investing in digital uh, is helping. The capital markets is always a wild card, and we don't see anything in terms of a distressed industry for commercial lending. Areas you may think of where there's maybe some small cracks would be shale oil uh, or possibly even uh, commercial real estate with overdevelopment. Hey, Ken, among the banks reporting today, Goldman, B of A, and then of course you had Citi and J.P. Morgan and Wells yesterday. I mean, what's the most interesting? What's the standout? What's the big bank that you like? We really like J.P. Morgan and Bank of America. Both of these are buys, and it gets to our 2020 plan. It may be conservative, but we call it America first. If you have a high percentage of your revenues coming from the U.S., growing faster than the rest of the world, that's going to benefit you. But you also have large revenue base. So we do get quarter-to-quarter volatility in the capital markets, whether it's trading or investment banking. That gets somewhat diffused with these larger banks versus making an outsized bet, you know, with Goldman Sachs. Well, and let's talk about Goldman if we can for a minute. I mean, this is sort of a new look Goldman in some ways. Uh, David Solomon certainly putting his stamp there. Is it working, this shift toward, you know, getting a little more of the consumer business going? How much has changed? How much needs to change in your estimation for GS? It's going to be evolutionary. It. What changes the quickest is their financial reporting. They had a very lumpy business, hard to forecast uh, investing and lending. That's now in asset management. And they have a new segment, consumer and wealth management. They set on the call. They got their first investor day ever, January 29th, that they're going to talk about long-term return on investment, not necessarily contributions of profit in 2020. This stock has done great. It's gone from... It was a great winner last year. Uh, we've seen momentum this year up to 247. It's up today. Uh, we think it's a sell simply because it's priced for perfection, and we don't think there's the earnings momentum in 2020, perhaps 21, as we see with some of the larger banks. What does, just really quickly, Ken, about 30 seconds here, what do the big bank earnings results tell you about um, the U.S. economy, the global economy right now? Just quickly. Um, very strong in the U.S. Um, Asia looks constructively positive, especially those developed markets uh, such as Japan and Southeast Asia. Latin America was a surprise. I think it's going to become weak again. And Europe still is in the negative territory. All right. We're going right. to leave it there. Great to get some time with you. Ken Leon, Global Director of Industry and Equity Research for CFRA Research. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We've been talking about this trade deal, but I think it's good to take a 
a little bit of a step back and go to two people from Bloomberg Business Week magazine, the editor, Joel Weber, and Christina Lindblad, the global economics editor for the magazine, for that worldly perspective. They have both the responsibility and, I don't know, maybe the luxury to sort of think about the whole world every week and what this may all mean, uh, not just for the U.S. and China, but for the rest of the world, for markets, for all of it. Christine and Joel. That's a lofty this. sell right there. But I know. We'll try, we'll try and live up we to it. We never sleep. We never <laughs> deliver. You better deliver. I'm in awe. Um, we do get a chance to talk to both of you most weeks about the magazine, but it's a rare treat to have Christina here in our studio for The Daily Show. Welcome. Thank you. All right. So when you look at this, uh, what do you make of it? Like, what, what does it actually mean for the world that this deal got done? Well, there weren't too many surprises in the end. Because um, that was the thing. There was going to be some mystery. To the final moment, there was mystery. Yeah, I think the numbers, the actual numbers by which the Chinese are committing to increase purchases, uh, is we still know that farmers gain the most. Um, I think, you know, also, besides what the numbers actually are, um, already people are saying um, there isn't really enough American gas that's not committed to LNG purchases already to free up for China if they wanted to buy this much more. So, you know, the logistics of how this is going to work out is still to be determined. I mean, I think a lot of the conversation this week uh, focused on, on enforceability, and there's a reason. China has a poor history of living up to its promises in some of these agreements. And that's, I think, really the heart of the story that we decided to put in uh, this uh, forthcoming issue of the magazine, uh, which really does provide the bigger context here. It's like, this is phase one. There's going to be multiple phases. Uh, there have been handshakes before, mm-hmm. and you know, after the handshake comes the hard part. That was Christina's headline. Um, Props. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things about this deal is that even though each side is supposed to open an office to monitor the uh, implementation of it, um, there there's not that much that's actually there's not transparent. And it's right. and the first sort of check-in comes in in 90 days, so there's like 30 days for it to go into effect. 90 days then for the check-in. By that time, we're going to be getting pretty close to the election, right? And I don't know that Trump is going to have um, a reason to call out the Chinese if there is this feeling that they're not living up to the end of the bargain. And that's always, I think that's been one of the narratives is like, here's a, here's a guy who's basically weaponized the relationship with China. And this starts to look a little bit like a truce, right? So, and, and you know, part of that is like within... Uh, his little war room. Um, what, what do you feel like the dynamics at play there are? There, I mean, because there's like the Navarros and Lighthouses of the world who have never been pleased and never wanted to cede an inch. Right. Well, I think they're probably those people are probably happy that we did not actually roll back any tariffs in order to get the deal. We just agreed not to put the next layer on. So they, you know, they say that's the leverage. That's how we're going to get the Chinese, you know, to keep, you know, to keep their commitments. Um, but I think they're in the end, though. They could, I mean, some people would have been happy to see this drag on longer, but, you know, there was this feeling now, you know, we're moving to caucuses and, like, early primary states that... Make a deal. That, yeah, that Trump needed to go in those into those contests with a victory in his pocket. Yeah. So- I, but what's interesting is, I think, you know, the things that are missing, and there are things that the U.S. has pushed for for a really long time, and whether it's China's state-backed 
you know, hacking of American companies and government institutions, um, the web of state subsidies that we see in China that support so many companies and industries. Like, none of that has come undone. And maybe that's in phase two, but these are some of the trickier issues, right, that we really care about and that may, may have more of an economic bang to it. That's right. And the administration has been pretty forthright about how those will be in the next stage. The problem is a lot of people don't believe there will be a next stage. You know, China has promised an earlier, there have been earlier handshakes, for example, over hacking, and those, you know, and those were not lived up to. The, the state subsidies, I mean, that requires a rethinking of what China Inc. is all about. Right. You know, state champions have been made and nurtured, you know, on, on these subsidies and, and free land, you know, cheap electricity, you name it. Right. So that is not something that anyone, and, and, and it's also the foundation of Made in China 2025, this blueprint for turning China into a power and all right. these like leading edge industries. So they're not going to be eager to give that away. You know, it's interesting too, Christine, and this came up with a conversation I had that we're going to hear a little bit more of later with Steve Schwartzman, who was in the room as uh, we were talking about before we came on air and as an intimate of the president. Uh, and it was something of a go-between between President Xi and Trump. And, and one of the things he said kind of in passing was, we could see, we already are seeing a little bit of a slowing Chinese economy. And so how does that look to you from, from where you sit in terms of the economic role China starts to play, A, with this new trade deal, but also with an economy that may not be firing in all cylinders like it was for so long? Well, I think there was a sense that, that China also had and you know something that was pushing it to the negotiating mm -hmm. table was the slowdown of the economy. Um, although some people speculated that they would be willing to wait until the uh, U.S. election or to see whether there was a change in power. So, um, I don't is know. Is your that sense that the Chinese economy is slowing? I mean, is that oh, sort of definitive? Oh, it, it definitely is. I mean, it's not crashing. Yeah. You know, this is the thing. I mean, the, the, the message from Beijing has always been like, we're on a glide path. <laughs> um, we, you know, we've reaped some of the biggest gains because we were a developing economy. We're now becoming a more mature economy. And that is a natural progression, seeing like growth rates slow. The question, though, is managing that in a way that you don't have like so much unemployment and so much, you know, frustration building up in a system where you don't have a democratic process to vent that, you know, so that is always a concern. But so far, what we've seen this year is like we, it, you know, there have been times when it looked like it was a bit off the rails, but I, I think that now people feel like it, it is kind of being managed in a way, you know, and, and they, you know, they have tools that they can deploy right. uh, to, to soften the blood. Yeah. tools. Uh, Actually, speaking of tools, another thing I just want to talk about because I thought this number was pretty amazing. Very quickly. Tariffs, though, not not going away. Yeah, right. exactly. Like, th this has the been election, the, right? the Trump uh, tool that basically came out of the closet and it turns out, you know, continues to use it. Um, and this is the number that jumped out to me. The tariffs um, that the U.S. levies on Chinese imports will be 19.3% higher after the deal takes effect than uh, before the trade war began. So, still a huge yeah. uh, tariff on top of all the yeah. deals that we're doing. From China, still in place, right? So that yeah. means a lot of American businesses are going to see Zippo. All right, Christina Lindblad, Joel Weber, thank you both so much. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly.
on Bloomberg Radio. Well, speaking of that a trade deal, Steve Schwartzman, uh, a key figure obviously here on Wall Street, but also a key figure in Washington and Beijing. He made numerous trips on behalf of the administration. He wrote about that in his book, which we got to talk to him about late last right. year. Carol, I caught up with him today just outside the White House. He was in the room for the big ceremony with the president. Here's what he had to say about what the deal means. This got to be a deal, uh, basically, uh, because it's been going on uh, for three years uh, since we really started this. Uh, it was uh, two days before Davos three years ago. Uh, and uh, so, so we've had a lot of uh, near misses, uh, uh, a little bit of success, and now a lot of success. Uh, and I think it takes a while for each country uh, to figure out uh, what it really wants to get out of a trade agreement, uh, what it wants to get out of the, the, the compliance, um, uh, the opening of its markets. Uh, and for China, uh, you have to remember uh, that the U.S. and China, other than the World Trade Organization uh, deal in 2001, fundamentally uh, hasn't had a trade agreement uh, since the 1940s. So what's been achieved uh, is very, very significant. Uh, the two countries want to work together. Uh, that's that's a huge change. Uh, the tariffs are starting to be uh, reversed. Uh, their uh, their major purchases of things of not just agriculture but uh, other things, uh, intellectual property uh, is is been reversed uh, separately. Uh, the conversations uh, in December regarding fentanyl, which is killing. Uh, over 50,000 Americans a year in China has really made huge strides uh, to cut off the supply of fentanyl. Right. And, and so what, what we're seeing is our countries that are competitive uh, but also have this huge relationship trade-wise. Together, these two countries, hard to believe, uh, the way you, depending upon how you calculate it, have between 35 and 40 percent of the world's economy just in two countries. Right. So the idea of decoupling uh, and everybody going their own way on virtually everything is, is, is impractical and, and it's also not good for the world economy. Right. So, so what the two countries have done now is figure out where they can start the dialogue, how they can implement it, uh, and it's a very positive uh, feeling. This wasn't a grudging. Uh, type of deal that's been entered into. All right. So, Steve, obviously you've been playing a bit of a role of a statesman going back and forth between these two leaders that you know very well. At the end of the day, you're a businessman. You're an investor. What does this do for you as a businessman, as an investor sitting at Blackstone? Does it amplify? Does it accelerate investments that you may be making around the world and specifically in China? Well, what it does is it, it provides a baseline uh, of, a, of a better world economy. And I, I think you're seeing in the uh, markets uh, uh, over the last sort of whatever you want to measure, uh, you know, the last year, uh, certainly the last few months, uh, as this agreement's come together, uh, it's not the only reason for uh, strong markets, uh, but it's, it's the business community globally uh, uh, telling you that things are better now uh, in terms of prospects than they were before this agreement uh, was was entered into. 
And so when you think about phase two, and we'll see when that gets started, what's the most important thing for you to see as an investor and a business person? Well, I think uh, phase two will cover a number of other things, uh, which, which, which are uh, important. Uh, you know, things that, that, you know, have not been resolved. There are some issues, you know, regarding uh, uh, cyber and uh, non-tariff uh, uh, trade uh, uh, restrictions. Uh, and, and, and also tariffs themselves have not been fully uh, negotiated out uh, in, in terms of where you go when these things um, uh, all unwind, assuming you have a successful uh, phase two, and there are other issues as well. Uh, and, and so what's important as a business person uh, is to know that there's positive momentum. There are countries who realize that even though they may be rivals in certain areas, that in the commercial area, as much cooperation on as fair a basis as you can do is better uh, than, than countries just sort of breaking apart, which is which is deleterious uh, for world trade and for business. All right, and that was Steve Schwartzman, the chairman, CEO, co-founder of the Blackstone Group, speaking to me earlier today from the White House lawn. He had been there inside the White House with President Trump, who I think it's fair to say, a friend of his. Yeah, uh, well, he, he says close. in his book, right, and we know Steve is very active, certainly in China. We know that he has helped, right, um, in terms of, you know, providing kind of a link, a relationship between Shuttle China diplomacy, and the U.S. Shuttle diplomacy, for sure. Shuttle diplomacy, exactly. Um, so I don't think there's anything we're telling. Um, but uh, I thought, I got to say, great interview. Thank you. Um, Jason, and I think what's interesting and very telling is the folks that were in that room as the president signed the deal with the Chinese. And ultimately, and I brought this up with Steve obviously there I mean this is enlightened self-interest for him he's done a lot of business in China he's been very philanthropic in China you know right. he created the Schwarzman Scholars sort of a postmodern next generation yeah. road scholarship uh, he's invested heavily he's made a lot of money uh, from the Chinese as well so he knows this story as well as anyone We'll see where uh, where it goes from here. But, you know, one of the parts we didn't hear of the interview and catch the whole thing on Bloomberg.com. But he also did talk about world's pretty expensive right now. But maybe, maybe there's an opportunity now to invest in China. <laughs> well said. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it's time for the drive to the close. Brad McMillan back with us, Chief Investment Officer and Managing Principal for Commonwealth Financial Network, joining us on the phone from Waltham, Mass. And Brad, I, we have this right, I believe. Last time we saw you was in Colorado. That's right. We were out at our conference there. We yeah. were just saying we were that reminiscing, was, actually. We were reminiscing about how chill it was right there on the planes. Good conversation, catching up with uh, with you and your colleagues. So that was a nice event. So congrats on that. Thank you for having us again. All right. So what's going on in the markets right now? Trade? Is it off the table? Is it still on the table? What do you worry about right now? Right now, I don't think it's about trade. The next thing I think we worry about is the impeachment. 
And while I don't expect a lot of damage in the long to medium term, we could we could see some pullbacks just as if if the trial in the Senate gets ugly. Okay, so you know it is interesting. You know, we, J- Jason and I, Brad, were just kind of like marveling at how much was going on today between trade impeachment. Uh, we're just kicking off uh, earnings. We're hearing from the big banks. So in terms of what this means for investment advisors and investors, what kind of kind of state of mind are they in at this point? Are they afraid to kind of commit new money, waiting to see I don't know X, Y, Z, or what? I think there's some caution out there. I was out speaking to clients just a couple of days ago, and the questions I got were more about people are starting to be worried. You know, the election's Mm -hmm. coming up. There's politics. I think there's really a sense that it's going to be a tough year in a lot of ways. So I think worry is the big thing right now. And so what about technology? Because that was on everybody's hit list last year in a very positive way. Obviously, the NASDAQ really leading the way and leading to big gains, outperforming the S&P and leading to some big gains. Uh, But what do you feel about it? How do you feel about it in 2020? I think the real story is going to be growth. And I think technology is one of the best, maybe one of the only ways to really systemically access real growth. But I think the interesting thing about tech is, in a lot of cases over the past couple of years, we've seen companies kind of masquerading as tech. You know, WeWork, for example, or even Uber. I think the companies that are real tech companies that are actually doing something different, not just techifying an existing business, are going to be the places to focus. Okay, so that's interesting. All right, so I do wonder uh, in terms of specific areas for investors. So you say technology, and it's you know it's fascinating, Brad, because we keep talking about some of those big tech names that really led a big part, again, of the rally. And certainly if you're an index fund, it led the gains there, and they seem to continue to this year. Is it those kinds of names? Is it chips? Can you be more specific? Or any thoughts uh, when it comes to that? I think I... I can't say that big tech companies, the fangs, aren't going to continue to do well, but certainly when you look at the price, you have to ask yourself, you know, how much more room for growth is there? I think that we should be looking at smaller companies, companies that are actually looking to looking to make things more efficient. I think a good example of something that just happened is Visa just bought Plaid. Right. You know, oh, yeah, there's yeah. a company which is putting something in that hasn't been done before and actually enabling larger parts of that infrastructure. I don't really talk about individual stocks that much, but that's yeah. a great example of the real chance to create value and growth. And so when you are talking to your clients, as you mentioned, you're out on the road, like what are they saying? What are they worried about or what are the questions they're asking you uh, most pointedly? Are we going to have a recession? Yeah. You know, those mm-hmm. that was the real question because they know, because I've been telling them, that's the real threat for a real bear market. And the answer, of course, is no, I don't think so because things are still solid. The other thing I think they're asking is we're, I'm starting to see renewed focus on some of the federal issues. The deficit is coming up more and more. So I think that's going to be a story and could be a headwind this year. 
You know, one of the things that came up in a, in a story that was very prominent on the Bloomberg yesterday, Brad, was this notion that family businesses in 2020 may be looking to sell in anticipation maybe of a Democrat coming into the White House and maybe in anticipation of, wow, maybe these valuations, this bull market can't run that much longer. I would imagine some of your clients are in that position where they uh, have their own businesses are they feeling like that? Is that the advice they're getting from from uh, others they're talking to? I think it is, because what you see is when you look at the deficits, a natural follow-up to the deficits is how are we going to pay for this? And taxes are going to have to go up. And when you look at the – and that's not politics, of course, that's math. Right. But when you, when you look at the um, – when, when you look at the election coming up, given that kind of backdrop – you have to say to yourself, okay, if it, we're going to be forced to raise taxes anyway, then there's not really a, an upside for taxes. There's only downside. The question is, how bad is it going to be? So now might be the best time to do that. I got to say, you know, Brad, it's interesting. We talked to a lot of folks. You sound a lot more negative than some of the folks. And, and I'm not saying it as a criticism, but it's interesting to get your perspective because I know you are talking with clients. You've got, you know, a lot of, you know, investment advisors, registered investment advisors that you guys are talking with too. But it sounds like between political headwinds, slowing growth, concerns about earnings, um, that's uh, a recipe for disaster potentially. Potentially, sure, Carol. But I mean, it's yeah. funny. I was actually giving this talk the other night. People came up to me and said afterwards, "Wow, you sound really cheerful." <laughs> you know? That's very funny. I, you know. I am the beholder. So, I don't know. I mean, is the glass half full or the glass half empty? Just quickly, just got about twenty seconds, Brad. I think the glass glass is half full at the okay. moment because the economy continues sound. We probably got another couple of quarters here of growth, both for the economy and the market. But what we do need to be aware of is those headwinds are building. And that's what I'm telling people to pay attention to. Yeah. All right. Good to catch up with you. Brad great. McMillan, Chief Investment great, great, Officer, great. Managing Principal over at Commonwealth Financial Network. He joined us on the phone from Waltham, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.